And and that's, of course, what he's proposing, that things just float around. There aren't any crystal globes holding things up, that these balls of planets just move, uh, you know, around in empty space. And that's quite frightening to people who haven't thought that. Or just the who don't know about gravity. like Right. <laughs> like in a world where gravity is not something that has been defined yet, how can we even just imagine the confusion? Hello once again, everyone. This is Jackson Nikolai, and you are listening to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am here with... Jacob Mann Christensen. Wow, I'm going first. (laughs) I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. (laughs) I threw the Jackson Nikolai in earlier, threw us for a loop there. But we are back again, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. You are such a discerning podcast listener. Pat yourself on the back. This is going to be a great show today because we are talking about one of the biggest theorists of the previous century of theater, uh, the uh, immortalized Bertolt Brecht. Yes, we are. We're doing a play by Brecht. By now, you've already clicked on the podcast link, so the drum roll up to the title isn't really going to work, but I'm going <laughs> to try gonna, yeah, This fine. is a play that is not the one that you will expect or the other one that you will expect. Uh-huh. It is like third or fourth off the bench in terms of Brecht plays, but it is my favorite Brecht play, really by far. Today, we are talking about Galileo, sometimes called The Life of Galileo. Yes, indeed. And I'm very excited to uh, do this play. I've I've seen a couple scenes from it before, but it's been for sure a long time since I've read it all the way through, if I ever read it all the way through. So I'm excited to get to talk about it. Galileo was also like my my science report when I was growing up. I did. Oh boy, you're gonna give yeah. us a whole history on him? <laughs> oh, totally. No, no. Uh, but and, and but. I tell you, Jackson, I've been really lucky. I didn't really realize it until this episode as I was kind of preparing myself for it, but these last three episodes that we've done, The Christians, Man of La Mancha, and Galileo, I I keep in an actual list form a list of some of the projects that I really want to do. And there's Ah. lots and lots and lots of plays that I want to direct. I mean, more than I could ever do in a lifetime. But I only keep six in like these are the plays that like my life goal is to try to get these plays directed or one of them. And all three of those plays appear on that list. The Christians is a very recent edition, as I only recently came across it, but it's number six on my top six plays that I want to direct, and Man of La Mancha and now Galileo, all of those (laughs) plays are on. Both Man of La Mancha and Galileo have been on for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Well, awesome. I mean, that's exciting. I'm glad we're going to get to talk about it today. Um, We wanted to real quick plug real quick, everyone, if you have the desire to, you know, Support this podcast that you've been listening to for a long time. Uh, Obviously, your likes and comments and shares and all that business is great. We love having those conversations with you. Um, But this show is not uh, free to make. We spend a lot of time and energy on it, but also we have some fees that are associated with it. And you can help us out with that. If you want to help keep this podcast going, we are over on Patreon, where we have a number of great tiers for patrons to jump on board and and become a a producer for this uh, interesting little podcast that we are doing. We have uh, uh, access to patron-only posts as a $1 tier. We uh, will thank you and give you producer credit within the episode at, at one of the other tiers up along it, and we have some more exciting things coming to Patreon as well. So Absolutely have- right. And like Jackson said, you know, the lowest tier is $1. $1 a month. If you, even if you only listen to every other episode or an episode every once in a while, I feel like you're definitely getting a dollar's worth of content. So please, we would really appreciate your support on Patreon. We spend a lot of our own money and time to put on this thing that we love to do. So I hope that you love it and that you're willing to go over to Patreon and support us. Yes, indeed. So, that being said, let's jump into some context on Bertolt Brecht. We were talking uh, just a little while ago and realizing that we hadn't done a Brecht yet, and and that is a, that is a, a, a sin on our part, as it were. I was reading some of the the theory around Brecht again in preparation for this, and I just remembered how much I like. Uh, Brecht and and his theories about theater in general. He is the pioneer of epic theater, which is the theater of alienation. Uh, for those of you who have studied theater theory, 
this is the guy for the theater of alienation. Um, uh, a lot of different principles speaking to the audience, loud noises, uh, jarring moments. Um, these things feed into his theater of alienation. And that is the pursuit of helping the viewer not be swept up in the emotion of something of a piece, but rather have their, all of their mental faculties engaged for the play that they are watching and thus the action that they will take afterwards. Right. It's this concept that the audience really should be self-aware, that they should be rational beings experiencing this play or theatrical art, that then because they're rational thinking beings, whatever they're seeing and experiencing will urge them on to some sort of social change or movement. And that, you know, a, causing people to be rational thinking beings in the audience, Brecht says is on the part, is partially, you know, the responsibility of the theater artists and the way that we do this art. We should not be trying to sweep people up in the emotions and the character's journeys. Instead, we should try to, he says, the theater of alienation. I've heard in some places that that might not be a great tran translation that actually um, distancing or disfamiliarization might be a little bit of a better term, trying to create some distance between the audience and the performance. Hmm, that's that's interesting. I haven't heard that uh, that reclassification before. But yeah, that that I like it. The distancing of yourself, separating uh, and and allowing your 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 self to engage fully in the play. Um, this play in particular uses a couple of those different uh, uh, tools of the theater of disassociation or alienation. Um, and we're going to get into some of those, but this play in particular was produced or written for the first time in 1938 by Brecht and uh, was produced in 1943 at Zurich, ooh, German, Zurich Schauspielhaus is how I'm going to say that. I, I appreciate the effort. <laughs> Yep. A German theater. <laughs> A German theater. Um, uh, then it was produced again uh, between 1945 and 47 uh, with uh, Charles Lawton, and that's the translation we're going to be using. Charles Lawton translated it into English. So the second version, or the American version, was produced at the Cornet Theater in Los Angeles in July of 1947, and that was the Charles Lawton 1945-ish translation of the play. Right, and as Jackson said, that's the one that we're operating from. There's some other translations floating around, but this is kind of the translate, the English translation of this play. Our our plays call it Galileo rather than the Life of Galileo, but like we said, either title really works. The, this play, for if you want some context in some of his other shows, comes about ten years after Three Penny Opera, and just a few years before, in the writing of it, a few years before Mother Courage, it actually premieres after. After Mother Courage by a few years. So this play and Mother Courage are pretty tightly tied together in those five years of Breck's life. Yeah, and, and all of them are kind of written as he was he he uh he was in Germany at the time that he wrote them, yes. And this was this was Hitler's Germany. So there's a lot of if if you want to look at the the kind of way that the world was working there, you will find tones of uh of critique of fascism, of critique of capitalism and socialism all in there. I don't know how much we'll get into that this time, but Certainly, uh, much study has been done about the time frame in which he wrote them and what he was critiquing within the, the art of Germany at the time. So the play is about Galileo, the historical person, and the discoveries that he makes around the, the stars, astronomy, what he is studying out there. So he makes a couple of discoveries, and these discoveries put him in, let's say, conflict with the Catholic Church of the time. Uh, the other thing that I've noticed about our programming, Jackson, is now we're three in a row about church conflicts. Um, oh, the Christians has yeah. obviously the theological <laughs> conflicts, man of La Mancha, Cervantes is uh, being interrogated by the Inquisition, and now the Inquisition appears again in this play about Galileo. Yeah. So he discovers, he, he purports that the Earth does not stand still and have the sun travel around it, but as is generally accepted now, not generally accepted. <laughs> That's not that. That's an understatement. As we know, is science fact now. <laughs> the Earth actually revolves around the sun, and so in order to get yourself into the play, which might not be what Brecht wants you to do, but let's say in order to connect with the play, you'll have to travel back in your imagination to a world in which that was questioned and and pretty seriously questioned, even by other scientists. 
we'll go through all the different beats that happen. But that's kind of the traverse of the play is Galileo in conflict with the church, especially with the Inquisition over his discovery that the earth revolves around the sun. Yeah, and it's all couched in this uh, kind of family dynamic as well. You, you, we pick up the story right at the top of the play in Venice, where uh, Galileo has kind of set up shop, right? Uh, Galileo is famously known from being from Venice before he moved uh, to, I believe Florence was where he moves eventually. We, we bounce all over Italy in this play. Um, and uh, so, so we pick it up with him kind of being this... Uh, the the resident scientist within Venice, he has made contraptions for the city before um, for them to, the, he talks about different water uh, productions that he's been able to do. Uh, and he's created and a specific kind of table which allows people to find cubed roots and the, the army is using that. And so he, I, I, I think the general sense is that of recently Galileo has not produced much useful information because he's been trying to study the the heavenly bodies, as it's referred to many times, the movement of the planets and the stars. At the time, the belief was the Earth was in the center of a series of crystal globes and that these crystal globes ever expanding, you know, the Earth in the middle, then a bigger one, then a bigger one like those Russian dolls, These on the insides of these crystal globes, that's where the stars and planets were affixed. Um, and, and obviously then this, the earth being at the center of all that is literally the center of the universe. That's the accepted doctrine by the church. And at the, at the beginning of the play, Galileo already believes this not to be true. Um, and he uses then an invention which comes across his desk and that he claims as his own, i.e. the telescope, to further prove this and continue that. Yeah, yeah, the telescope plays a pretty prominent role in the first quarter of the play. Um, it is one of Galileo's most famously known inventions, um, but perhaps the 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 morality of of the issue comes to light a little bit in this, <laughs> in that. Uh, uh, the, one of the characters, Ludovico, who I'm sure will come up uh, again, uh, kind of comes in from being in Holland and introduces him to the the this this item that he was shown in Holland that it was a uh, you know two glasses affixed on a uh, with a affixed on a roll and and he could see things far away and Galileo shows him a drawing and is like is this in fact. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, this item and and he then improves on it he says quote unquote and, yeah quote unquote and then sells it to the merchants of Venice right he claims it as his own invention because as we've said it's been a while since he's produced something of monetary value and so some of his income from the city is being in question because he's just writing these papers about the movement of heavenly bodies and that's not particularly useful to their society so he in quote unquote invents this telescope and we with the telescope discovers now proof that the earth or, or at the very least proof that there are no crystal globes. What does he see in the sky with these few stars, Jackson? Yeah, well, uh, some of the big things he notices are – so the moon, for, in, for instance, is one of the big ones. He and his friend Segredo um, are looking at the moon and they notice that there are there – are, uh, the shadows on the moon are moving at a different rate than expected. They are hitting what look like mountains on the moon. The light hits the peak and then it takes a while to hit the slopes on the moon. And so there's, there's this shimmering effect that uh, that happens. So that's one thing. The other big thing is Jupiter. Um, the, the biggest deal, the thing that kind of that uh, propels him into other spheres of influence around Italy and thus into the Vatican and the church Um are the moons around Jupiter. He notices that they have their own uh, orbit, that they are revolving around Jupiter. And, uh, and and he notices this by the fact that one of them is missing after <laughs> over, over a certain amount of days. He documents that one is completely missing, and thus he deduces that it is in fact on the other side of Jupiter. And so if these stars are rotating around Jupiter, there can be no crystal globe which holds Jupiter in place because things are moving around it. That would break the plane of the crystal globe. And this is Galileo's new discovery. And because of the town in which he is living and, he, and that there's some 
ill feelings towards him for having uh, uh, <laughs> lied about his invention of the telescope. They discover yeah. that Holland is importing them for pennies, a telescope, right. and Come, that yeah. they've wasted a bunch of money on him. And because he, he knows that in order to continue to live there, he will have to continue to produce, quote unquote, useful things. He decides to move to Florence. He's been he's been warned against that by some friends because the warning to him is that if you move to Florence, you'll be under the thumb of the Inquisition. They're not going to let you think for yourself after a while. But Galileo, kind of continuing throughout the play, one of the deep criticisms of him is that he's this sort of lazy, glutton, uh, needs his earthly pleasures. And that's actually, of course, another Brechtian characteristic, this idea that even the hero has these deep faults and... And, and things that prevent you from seeing them in this sort of grand light of all the good that they've achieved. So because Galileo is who he is, a greedy glutton, he says, in Florence, I can just do my research and they'll pay me and put me up in comfort. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting uh, to, to note the difference in these kind of flaws of the character because I don't I think they're different than tragic flaws I don't think they they necessarily necessarily function in the same way in fact Brecht would probably hit me on the head if I compared him to an Aristotelian tragic flaw um, the the these flaws are very different they propel him toward something at a different rate than the way a tragic flaw works it kind of just rests it doesn't it does it's not like the whole plot hinges on this one flaw of Galileo's. Right. They're, they're really character traits designed to make the hero seem less perfect rather than they are plot devices. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, you, you kind of see them as a, just, you know, a human doing these things and, and you continue on that way. So in Florence, he gets that, right? He gets, gets more things. Let's, I do want to back up real quick before we move on to move on in, in the, the world of Florence that he he interacts with there. He has he has an interaction with An- Andrea early on, and Andrea is a pretty prominent character throughout. And we should set up that relationship real quick. That's right. So Andrea is the the son of his what his landlady, his housekeeper. Yeah. Um, and at the beginning of the play is a is a younger boy who is sort of whittling free lessons out of Galileo. Uh, yeah. He's fascinated. He's bright. Um, and, and so Galileo teaches Andrea about the movement of the planets and sort of also teaches him this idea that doubt is now beginning to creep into the public square. One of the grander themes throughout the play is this idea that the people, the sort of commonplace everyday people, does this sound like a Brecht play or what? The common (laughs) everyday people are beginning to question the authority of the powers that be, in this case, the Catholic Inquisition, the Catholic Church itself, the governments, and And they're beginning to say, just because you say something is a fact doesn't mean it is. And I can begin to put my own eye to it. And so Galileo tells Andrea the story of how he witnessed these uh, these sailors. They had to lift this heavy object in the hot sun. And he said they argued for five minutes and they decided that there's an easier way to do it. So they just stopped doing it the way they'd been doing it for thousands of years in preference of a way that made more sense, that was easier. And so he says, you can begin to see real doubt and skepticism creep its way into the common everyday folk. Yeah, yeah, that's the the one of the kind of fascinating things about this play in general is it it looks at a crux of history where people started to question more, and uh, I think I think maybe they weren't questioning quite as much as Galileo hoped they were. Um, I think as we we find out maybe later that that there's some more hesitation to the this kind of scariness that happens when you throw off hundreds of years of authority and. Uh, and so, so that's that's kind of interesting to watch. But he seems to be the the champion of this. We can get truth to the the people in general, and and they deserve to hear it. It's a you know, it's it's a it's right about just after the Reformation. So the Reformation is happening too. The church is yeah, losing I think control of some things. There's actually a reference to it in there, like, oh, that <laughs> Reformation was such a disaster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So it's a huge theme across all of Europe at this time. Information is starting to trickle down and become accessible to people in the and public forum. And of course, forum. one of the other places we see that in the play is that at this time, at least in Brecht's imagining, pretty much everything is written in Latin. Everything written down and printed is written in Latin, and the common people don't speak Latin. So there's this there's this disac- uh, uh, failure of access to information on the part of the educated and the elite can read these Latin books and become learned and and you know smart thinkers and the common people don't have that access so that will become important later on in the story when Galileo makes a, a fairly crucial decision in his narrative here yeah we we see that uh, played out quite a bit with his uh, friend Federozini who is is uh, the the lens maker for the telescopes he's also kind of one of the people who surrounds Galileo in his experiments um there's there's this kind of crew that forms around Galileo and it's Andrea who we've mentioned already uh Segredo who is his friend it comes in and out a couple times and then there is Federozini who um, who who is who is there helping him with his experiments? I think I think the relationship forms as he's the glass maker who makes right. the it, telescope. It's never lenses. really explained, but I agree. I do think you can infer uh, Galileo sends Andrea off to find a lens maker to make the lenses of the telescope, and then very shortly thereafter, a lens maker Ferrazzini comes to be to be Galileo's student and his helper and his assistant. And so I do think that there's an inference there that this is that lens maker. Yeah, I think I think I agree with that. Um, you have Ludovico in there as well, but he's kind of this weird other, other almost yeah, antagonist. He becomes an antagonist towards the end. And then, of course, there's the character of the little monk, one of my absolutely favorite characters in the play. And we'll, we'll get to his part in it shortly. So Galileo discovers the movement of the heavenly bodies, as we've talked about. And he and Segredo have this conversation. Now that he has the telescope and he can see it, Segredo expresses probably the common sentiment of sort of fear at things being shook up. We, he asks the question, where is God? And Galileo says this really revealing line about how there's no crystal globes anymore. Things are just moving about in space. He says, there is no support in these heavens. Hmm. Yeah. And, and that's, of course, what he's proposing, that things just float around. Right. There aren't any crystal globes holding things up, that these balls of planets just move, uh, you know, around in empty space. And that's quite frightening to people who haven't thought that. Or just the who don't know about gravity, like right, <laughs> like in a world where gravity is not something that has been defined yet, how can we even just imagine the confusion, especially among the learned folk who who are who are like grappling with it for the first time, who are bucking years and years of authority? There's there's this, a good chunk in here in this. I think it's scene four um, where he's showing off the telescope for the first time to the, the people prince. in Florence. Yeah, right. and and there's there's other people around him. There's like the grand Chamberlain and a mathematician there and they talk a lot about authority and uh, and and authority versus I think science or facts I think is a way to, to talk about it because Galileo is the person who is flying in the face of this quote-unquote authority and authority just means the way they believed things for a long time and so most of people's counter arguments to Galileo's visible proof that there are moons around Jupiter is well so-and-so from hundreds of years ago and said this and we've held it as true forever. All of our scientific thought is based on this person from hundreds of years ago. Right. You're talking about a pair of scenes that's my maybe my favorite or, or close to my favorite pair of scenes in the play, scene four and scene five. Galileo has gone to Florence and as a way to introduce himself to the court of Florence, he's actually named these stars or moons around Jupiter after the prince of Flor- uh, Florence. So he shows up to the royal court and is showing off the telescope and how you can see the stars and how you can notice that they disappear at certain times of the month and things like that. And uh, all of the the royal court, these representatives, mathematicians and philosophers are all talking about how it's impossible, that Aristotle said it was this way, that the Catholic Church has held it was this way. What you're talking about is crazy. It must be a fraud. And they go back and forth about science for a while. And there's a great exchange where one of the philosophers, kind of the main antagonist of scene four says, and where is all this leading? And Galileo says, well, as scientists, as people who pursue truth, should we be afraid of where the truth leads us? And And the philosopher says, Mr. Galileo, the truth might lead us anywhere. 
<laughs> in in yeah. this you know sense of like we we can't control it when truth is something above the the influences of sort of our elite bourgeoisie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the line the line that's sticking out in my head is from the paragraph right before there, where Galileo responds to them, and they were they're they're referring to Aristotle and and the 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 old way of thinking about things, and he says in response to that, truth is the daughter of time, not of authority. And that is that is all mixed in that as well. We're going to be quoting quite a bit, I think, from this play because there are so many good lines in this it, play. It's, it's an incredible play full of just memorable images and lines. Yeah. So that happens in scene four. And the conclusion of scene four is basically Galileo must be lying. And nobody is willing to look at the telescope. Yeah, nobody. everyone's like afraid. Nobody, <laughs> nobody even wants to look through it, afraid of what it's going to bring down. So the next scene, they bring in an expert on astronomy to look through the telescope and consult about what Galileo is saying. So behind closed doors, the expert in astronomy is working, and outside there, there's a whole group of people, some scholars, some priests, that are basically just making fun right. of Galileo about how crazy his idea is. You know, they're like, they're they're pretending to stumble around, like, <laughs> oh, the earth is moving. How <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and he gets a big lecture from this older priest who yeah, talks about cardinal, the last yep. guy that they burned at the stake for saying things like that. And in one of the most dramatic conclusions to a scene, how does scene five end, Jackson? Oh, it's so great. The doors dramatically burst open and in comes uh, Christopher Clavius, who is the lead astronomer for the Vatican. And he just says one line. Three words. As he's walking out. He doesn't As look at anybody. He just yep. stalks past him and says. He is right. <laughs> <laughs> is that great or what? It's probably five to ten minutes of people making fun of Galileo, yelling at him, telling him all the things that must be wrong, how immoral he is, how stupid he is. And he just, the guy stalks out. He's right. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Which is awesome. Just such simplicity in in SmackDown. Um <laughs> <laughs> which which kind of turns a page for Galileo, right? We're kind of going through chronologically, but this is a chronological play. You kind of need to understand the build of it. But this is a moment that switches for Galileo. Suddenly, uh, the leading astronomer of the Vatican is on his side. He he has confirmed that the the moons of Jupiter, or as they refer to them, the stars of Jupiter, um, are in fact uh, proving that there is some difference in what they've believed from from all of history. And so he is invited into other circles, especially in Rome. Um, he kind of transitions straight from there to a party with uh, one of the prominent cardinals of Rome. And in classic Brechtian style, the jumps between scenes don't care much about time or distance. Yeah, or unities. Uh, like. Many <laughs> years go by between scene five and scene six without much mention there that there have been many years. The, the sort of Brechtian odd jumps in time occur several times throughout this play, and this is one of them. So we fast forward many years with really no idea what might have occurred in the intervening years. Yeah. Except that some people are now older. Yeah. Yep. And and so yeah, we 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 jump forward an indescribed in amount of time to this party, where uh, he is invited to a cardinal's house, and it's a, a mask. This is this is one of uh, Brecht's techniques. Masks are a thing. Uh, we the, this is this is an interesting play. I'm gonna pause real quick and have a quick aside about that because a lot of this play, I was unexpected. I was unexpectedly surprised at how little kind of noticeable Brecht things there are in this play. Right. It doesn't seem at first blush to be a very Brechtian play. Yeah, I agree. In fact, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to spoil just a little bit here. Uh, I set the play down at one point and went to grab some water. I, I was reading through it and I, I, I talked to, to my wife, Hannah, and said, this this is interesting. I wasn't expecting this. This is a, a very non-Brechtian play. There's not like big dramatic stuff happening or or anything like that. And I set it down at the end of scene eight. And scene nine is this huge pantomime of these <laughs> actor folks <laughs> walking through There's town. A song There's a and song. all kinds of stuff. <laughs> like, people break eggs yeah. over each other's head. Uh -huh. And and that moment <laughs> I picked it back up and I was like, 
Oh, oh, here it is. <laughs> there it is. Found yeah. the Brecht. <laughs> and, and what we're not saying, and another sort of notably Brechtian feature is these, what I imagine Brecht probably would have put on placards, what we might do with projections or narration today. At the beginning of each scene, there's a, a sort of small poem which describes the action which is to come. So like before here in scene six, there's this small poem that says, when Galileo was in Rome, a cardinal asked him to his home. He wined and dined him as his guest and only made one small request. Yeah. And that, that, that feeds back into what we were talking about, this, this theater of alienation. He, he kind of ruins the scene, you know, quote unquote, ruins the scene for you. You're not just... And actually, that one's not a great example because that one doesn't tell you what's going to happen. Several of the other rhyming couplets do tell you what's going to happen. Right, They right. give away what the decisions may, like the one where Clavis, the, uh, the astronomer, confirms that Brecht is right that we just talked about. The beginning of that scene says... The astronomer is going to tell us that Brecht is right. Yeah, yep. <laughs> but it keeps you active. It keeps you actively looking for when whatever this placard uh, tells you is going to happen will happen. So you enter the scene going, "Ooh, when will this happen?" And you're you're engaged. You're not you're not swept up emotionally in it anymore, but you are mentally I still engaged. Am. <laughs> Even in the reading. Sorry, Brecht. Um, and the other thing we have mentioned is that several of the scenes, not all of them, all of them start with a rhyme or something, but several of them also end with a quote by Galileo or another person that sort of reflects on the, the action of, of what's occurred. So there are those very Brechtian features of these kind of text. He would have used placards interposed over the action of the play. Yes. And in this scene, there are masks, as they are at a mask ball. Um, the, the biggest beat of this scene, there's, there's, I guess there's two really uh, substantial beats in this scene as far as what, where the story is going. Um, he's introduced to two cardinals at this banquet. One of them is Cardinal Bellarmine, and the other one is Cardinal Barberi Barberini. And, uh, and the only one you need to remember is Cardinal Barberini. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's the only one that comes up later, but these pair of cardinals are sort of a good cop, bad cop, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. The uh, Bellarmine comes in and he's a little bit more antagonistic. Uh, he kind of pushes at Galileo's buttons as uh, as they are talking through things. And Barberini tends to be on his side a little more. He he doesn't cut him any slack, really, but he tries to soften the blow that Bellarmine eventually declares uh, Galileo's pursuit, this this scientific pursuit, heresy. Um, well, right. And, and, and in sort of a grand contradiction, Bellarmine says that, you know, the, the teaching that the earth revolves around the sun is forbidden. It is hearsay. It is wrong. And then Barberini says, oh, and the, the papal scientists have confirmed your, your discoveries. Right, right. <laughs> in, the, in the same breath, one right after the other. The church <laughs> has said this is wrong and hearsay. Oh, and our scientists have said that you're also right. Yeah. Yep. Which is this interesting uh, combination of of uh, of themes in this, which is the withholding and concealing of information versus the the imperative to share that information. Um, the church in this scene says, "Yes, you're right, and you're forbidden from ever telling anyone." <laughs> um, which is which is 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 this. Uh, weird dichotomy, this paradox almost between what is there and so frustrating for Galileo to try to grapple with because he has the truth. He's gotten the people of power to finally say that it is true and they are still uh, stopping him from pursuing that information. And this is what Bellarmine says about the relationship between science and the church. It's potentially pretty different from how we think about it today. After he's told Galileo that he cannot preach what he knows to be true and what the church has agreed is true, he says, uh, you know, get over it. It's all right. Um, it is granted not to it, – it's sorry. It is not given to a man to know the truth. It is granted to him to seek after the truth. Science is the legitimate and beloved daughter of the church. Sounds encouraging. But then <laughs> she must have confidence in the church. Yeah. We yeah. love science. Science is so great. We are af absolutely at the pursuit of the truth, but we're also in charge. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
So, so what are some of the reasons why? I, I mean, it's it's pretty easy to gut 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 wrench and say, uh, "Dang it! How dare they keep this information private?" Um, but that I think this play does a good job at kind of showing some of the reasons why. Uh, what what are some of those reasons why that the church tried to repress this information for so long? Right. I think that the main argument that is advanced from the officers of the Pope and the Vatican is that. If if the earth is no longer the center of the universe, then man or humankind is no longer the center of the universe. In this song scene that Jackson mentioned from later on, actually, the song does a fairly good job at laying out how based on this idea that earth and humankind is the center, the most important feature of the universe, the church had constructed sort of a theology of subservience where – they had ordered society so that people served, different people served each other and thus created a class of elites and a class of non-elites, the, you know, the, the servile, the workers. And so to say, well, the earth actually revolves around the sun. We're just a random planet amidst many other planets has totally undone not only the theology that they had constructed about how God created humans as the most important feature of this universe, which it upends that, but it also upends the social order, which the church has worked so hard to instill. Yeah, definitely. It, it it's it has ramifications both theologically, which every all the Vatican reacts very strongly to, and saying don't don't try to mess around with theology. You're just dealing with science. Um, and then, but I I absolutely agree that the social structure is completely up has the opportunity to be completely upheaved as a result of it. There's there's another um, kind of interesting oblique way of addressing it, this same fear and this same issue within the social structure, but from the plight of those who are more towards the bottom of, of the, uh, the social order. And that's uh, what the little monk, uh, is how he's introduced begins to argue with Galileo about in one right. scene. Right, so that's actually the next scene, I believe. Yeah, so yeah. this scene with the mask concludes, they say, Galileo, you're forbidden to teach this. There's some argument back and forth about science and the nature of the truth and, and et cetera. And, and eventually they all exit. And then it's revealed that there is an inquisitor, basically an investigator for the Inquisition, who is following Galileo around, listening to what he says. He talks to his daughter. So he's clearly being investigated by the Vatican end scene. The next scene is between Galileo and the first introduction we have to the little monk. Second, I believe. I think he's introduced in the uh, previous big cardinal scene. He comes up to him after Clavius says that you're right. And he comes up and says, I'm glad you're right, basically. We, we, we meet him oh, prior right. to that. Oh, you're yeah. right. That's true. So he he's in there when the astronomer reveals um, not only that Galileo is right, but I think he's also in the room with the astronomer. Mm -hmm. And he hears the astronomer say, uh, Galileo's right. The science is there. Now it's up to the church to reorganize and rediscover our theology. Yeah. So we we are introduced to the little monk there and then this quite a lovely one of my one of the scenes I'm really quite fond of in the play uh, exchange between the monk and Galileo yeah and it's it's a beautifully balanced scene uh it kind of starts with the monk saying that he's been thinking about this again for an indescribed amount of time between scenes he's been thinking about this issue that um no, the earth is no longer the center of the universe and what ramifications that has for both theology but for the people as well. And he talks about his parents who are kind of older olive farmers out in the you know rural areas of Italy and, and how, how much they take comfort in that system, in this system of because <laughs> – we're getting, we're getting a lot into theology in this one – because the, uh, the earth is the center of the universe – um, and because of this social structure where everyone depends on the person below them and depends on the person above them, the people at the bottom actually have this sense of, of duty and comfort and hope that at the end, their commitment to the work that they have done will be rewarded because they are the only thing in the universe that matters. <laughs> right. And even though they're incredibly poor, as he describes, they have no money. They only live by the you know seasonal routines of having to pick all their crops and paying it all to taxes and things. Even though all of that is true, as humankind, they're still the center of the universe. God has still orchestrated this pageant of the planets around them and their hard work. And so they contribute to the social order and to God's great unweaving story. Mm -hmm. And the monk says this is important to their 
their lives. This is what gives them great hope. Who am I to say that's not true? You're just a random bit of dust on a random planet. Nothing you do matters. All of your hardship and toil, it's not part of this greater story. It just is. Right. And and Galileo kind of reacts pretty strongly to that. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't really cut any slack for him. He just gets right back up in his face and kind of says, what What do we do if we don't push the truth through? There is no such thing as a truth that just exists out there all the time and is uh, will manifest itself eventually when it's the right time. Truth is only brought about because we push for it and we try to push it through. And Galileo doesn't make quite make this argument, but I think it's the core of his argument, which is, What's the alternative? Are we supposed to know that it's true that their toil is not the center of the universe? Are we supposed to know that's true and lie to them, creating them a false hope? Where is that in your religion portrayed? The monk ultimately just says, you know, he he, he sort of has an emotional appeal to Galileo, which overwhelms him. This sort of idea that my parents are old people. This is all they have. What are you doing? Which kind of quells Galileo until he just, he picks up the stack of papers and just throws it on the ground and says, that's my latest essay. If it's true what you think and you believe, then there's no need for you to read it. And of course, the monk gives in and then becomes part of this cohort of little, this team that travels around with Galileo and does experiments with him and such. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a compelling scene of this. It's kind of the only time that Galileo is taken aback for a moment. I I like that you, you brought that moment up because that's the culmination of the little monk's argument is just that they're old and we, and I can't ask them to completely, throw away everything they've depended on for however many years in favor of something new that shatters their worldview. How, how awful is that of me? And that is the only thing I think in this, in especially the first two thirds of this play that causes Galileo pause. So what follows is that we learn that Galileo has abided by the rules of the Vatican. He's not been studying the movement of heavenly bodies for quite some time now. The next scene is him and his cohort of scientists, which at this point <laughs> includes Andrea, Ferrazzini, and the little monk, and Galileo. This this quadret, uh, that's not the right word, quad, <laughs> quad. Quartet? Quartet, thank hey. you. This quartet of scientists, uh, all they're they're investigating why things float and, or something. Yeah, you know? the floating uh, bodies. <laughs> something you know, something not nearly as interesting as the movement of the planets. <laughs> yeah. And what what happens is that Virginia's now betrothed. Um, the, the same guy that came to him early in the play for lessons. Virginia uh, is his daughter, by the way. I don't know that we've said that. I, yeah, I'm not sure that we've introduced Virginia. He has a daughter, Virginia, who's present in several of these scenes. And now she's engaged to the young student he had at the beginning of the play. And the student shows up and says, by the way, have you heard that the Pope is dying? Yeah. Oh, and your old friend Barberini. Is that is that right, Jackson? Yep, that's correct. Barberini. Mm-hmm. And your old friend Barberini is probably going to be the new pope. Yeah. Yeah, what an inciting incident for them. All of a sudden, this, this and Barberini is is uh, in another scene obliquely referred to as this man of science, uh, this mathematician who is uh, a slave to the multiplication tables. Right, if you remember the pair of cardinals that come to him at the party, he was the good cop of that good cop, bad cop pair, the one that says, I believe in science, I understand what you're saying, but here's what the Bible says, here's what the history has said. He doesn't seem to be unwilling to hear out Galileo's arguments, and he has some history of science himself, whereas the other guy was not that way. Right, yep. (laughs) So it's likely that uh, Barberini's star is on the rise to become Pope Urban, um, which eventually he does, and so Galileo moves on that information that day. As Ludovico is there. <laughs> right. He says, you know, we used to have this conservative pope who wouldn't let me study this, but now Barberini is going to be the pope. He's going to let me study this and do real science and pursue real truth. And Ludovico says, the the, the young fiancé says, if you continue down this path, I cannot marry your daughter. You're going to upset all the peasants that we, you know, on, on our great winery. Um, you're going to make my family look bad, essentially. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. so if, if you continue to 
study this, I can't marry your daughter. And Galileo says, well, sorry. That's fine. <laughs> and, and, and in what is, I think one of the, <laughs> at least the, the stage directions make this pretty comical. During this whole scene where they're doing this little experiment with this ice piece that is resting on, on metal and things and they're trying to float different weighted things, there's a large telescope covered up in the room. <laughs> Like a and large. Notably, Galileo's eyes have been bad yeah. because apparently people have been sending him uh, in letters to try to get him to steady why there's these spots in front of the sun, which probably relates to the movement of the heavenly bodies. So Galileo has not been studying it. Maybe. Maybe. But we do know that he's starting to go a little blind and he's not supposed to be studying a question about the sun. <laughs> Any relation, maybe? Yep. So so anyway, they the 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 young fiance leaves and says, "I'm not marrying your daughter. Sorry." Um, and and they decide to move forward by studying the heavenly bodies. They're going back to proving that the Earth revolves around the sun. And I just love the ending of this scene. I think that the final Galileo's final monologue in this scene is so stirring. It's really the core of science. The the quartet s- starts to say, "Okay, we're going back to studying this, right?" And Andrea says, we're going to study it with great likelihood of discovering and establishing the rotation of the sun. And Galileo corrects him and says, with some likelihood of establishing the rotation of the sun, and goes on to give this passionate defense of careful science. He says, I'm not out to prove that I'm right. We're going to start by proving that I can't be wrong. We're going to start by proving that this isn't true and this isn't true. And every day we're going to start over again and prove what's not true until we only have one possible conclusion. And only then will we say that we're right. I find it to be a beautiful description of the process of science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how much time it will take, uh, how much he he trusts that eventually he will figure it out, but that he's committing to something that could go beyond him and that might need to be carried on after him for the amount of time that that is needed to to follow it and the other the other ending to the scene after this beautiful um reassertion that science is is the noble pursuit his daughter virginia runs in and and finds out that he has he is she, she loves ludovico we haven't we haven't talked about that too much it's kind of a subplot um that that pops up every once in a while but from uh, early on there's there's one scene in particular it's very short where they they spend some time uh, with with Virginia and Ludovico, and and make it clear uh, through a couple other mentions that she is very much in love in love with Ludovico, and Galileo has made this choice to just shut down that portion <laughs> of of her yeah, life. Yeah, he he ends their relationship because he's not willing to stop his pursuit of this of this proof. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's how that scene ends. They're going to move forward. Galileo believes the new pope will protect him, and we come to. One of the most striking images, one of my favorite scenes in the whole play. I'm sure I've said that 12 times already for all <laughs> for every scene. Yeah. Um, but in truth, this is, I think, one of the most poignant images of the whole play. It is a scene between the new pope, Barberini, and the Inquisitor character who represents sort of the anti-scientific forces in the Catholic Church. Yeah. Do you want to describe what they talk about, Jackson, and then I'll describe the image that is being built? Yeah, so so I think to describe what they're talking about, I have to real quick sum up the, the previous scene, which is uh, Galileo is brought to Florence again. He brings his book to Florence, and the prince won't accept it. The prince of Florence won't, won't accept the book. Um, he is led there by Virginia, and the Grand Chamberlain meets them, says, yeah, thanks, but he's not going to read it, basically, and then starts to leave. They try to get out of there quickly, and the Grand Chamberlain yells at them, by the way, the prince of Florence is no longer in a position to guard you from the papacy and the Inquisition. Um, because he's violating what the Vatican has told him not to study. We've also skipped the marketplace scene with all the songs. Yeah. Um, we yep. described that a little bit earlier and we're, and we're trying to move through the play here. So yeah, yeah. we've skipped the very Brechtian musical <laughs> interlude. Yes. <laughs> but we've talked about that a little bit before. So the Inquisition we know is on the trail of Galileo. So this scene between uh, Pope Urban, formerly Cardinal Barberini, and the Cardinal Inquisitor is this scene where... The cardinal is trying to get Barberini to let him torture Galileo into recanting his beliefs. 
because Galileo has published in the common language a book which proves that the earth rotates around the sun yeah. and that the Catholic papacy, the teachings are wrong. And so they say, we he has to recant this book. The, the people are reading it. That wasn't in good taste. He should have published it in Latin like all the other books. And then we could have argued about it. But he sent it to the people. He's said that the teachings are wrong. He's done what we told him not to do. He has to recant it. Yeah, which prompts the crazy pantomime scene. The people are now forming plays, and it's in the public discourse that Galileo is overthrowing the church, and the world now rotates and stuff. We're not the center of the universe anymore. The marketplace scene ends with an enormous float of Galileo's (laughs) head, and he's holding a Bible with, like, a big X drawn over the pages. (laughs) Yeah. And he's, like, pointing at it, and there's an announcer that's like, Galileo the Bible killer. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So that happens. And so the people have discovered and Galileo's published his findings that the earth rotates around the sun. Yes. And then there's this scene in in what I imagine could be a lot of these plays originally were performed in opera houses. So they're pretty grand spaces. I imagine in my mind that this is a grand space that the that the pope is getting uh, dressed in basically from his dressed into his papal vestments. During this scene, and the Pope, as we as we've discussed, is a character that believes in science. So the debate is: the Pope says, "I am not going to be on the other side of science." Galileo is the brightest astronomer, the brightest physicist we have. He's a genius. He's proved that we're wrong. I'm not going to go against him. I cannot have the Church say no to reason and facts. That can't be who we are. And the Inquisitor provides more and more arguments about how. This is going to undo everything. It's going to cause all this doubt how bad it is and that he should let him torture Galileo into recanting. And the ending image is Barberini has gone from being dressed normally in his in his whatever, his cardinal robes or his normal robes. And he's this man that says, I'm not going to put the church against science. And the stage directions describe that he is dressed in these pope robes so that he, you can't see him underneath them. Yeah. All you can see are his eyes, that they've just so covered and engulfed him. You can't, again, you can't see my gestures. I do this all the time, <laughs> but I'm making big gestures right now. They've engulfed him. And he says, finally, all right, you can't torture him, but you can scare him by showing him the instruments of torture. And it's this, I mean, what a striking image of somebody who doesn't believe what's happening, but has been so engulfed by this arm of the church that he has, he has no person left. Yeah. Yeah. You just, just like this kind of, imagine like, uh, I, I hesitate to add this almost comical image, but like Michelin man style, almost like he is completely covered over in these probably beautiful papal clothing that he, you just only can see his eyes. And then additionally around him, there is the noise of shuffling feet throughout the entirety. The stage directions call for this shuffling feet. And he at one point yells at them and tell them to go away. I can't, I can't take this anymore. There's just people around and there's like kind of whispers around and, 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 and you just get the sense that there's so much being put on this person so much that even someone of, of the bent that would agree with Galileo is forced to break underneath the, the greater social structures around them. And lose all sense of identity. You know, he becomes only a figurehead of the church. Right. And of this particular mode of thinking rather than a free-thinking individual who can make his own decisions. Yeah. Yep. So we come to the last few scenes of the play here. Yeah, yeah, and and there's there's quite a lot kind of stuffed into these scenes. There's the 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 quartet as we've been calling them um, is is in the square. They they know that Galileo has been arrested. They know that the Inquisition is questioning him. They don't know whether or not he's being tortured or not, but they're trying to assure each other that it, that he will not turn at the last moment. It kind of reminds me we're being well, what very. What they know is that they know that the options are either that Galileo is going to recant and admit that he was wrong and thus say what I know to be true isn't true, or he's going to be tortured to death. Right. And so they're waiting to see if he's going to recant or if he's or, or that he's dead. And so they're lamenting that they think he's going to die, but they're also sort of bolstered by this idea that even he wouldn't recant in the face of truth and injustice. Yeah, yeah. They refer to him as like this mountain or something like that that will not that will not break. And uh, they, they know that if the, the church has said that if he does recant, they'll ring the bell at this church and then read the proclamation of his of his recant. So at the time that the church said it would happen, it passes by like a couple minutes. 
and they're sitting there waiting for it to happen and they start celebrating. They're like, he didn't do it. I mean, it's sad he died, but he didn't break. Science is upheld. Our lives were are, are in the service of something greater. And, and they start, you know, almost kind of mourning him in that. And then the bell rings and Galileo is let out kind of shuffling into the square. And, uh, and you see these, these, these people who believed Galileo slowly devolve a little bit in from, in front of him and ignore yeah, him. Especially Andrea, who's, you know, was this little boy and is now an adult man. Many years have gone by. He's been Galileo's disciple, his student, his friend. And he believes that Galileo is going to stand firm in the face of the injustice of the church to hold the truth in such contempt. But Galileo's going to stare him down and he doesn't. He fails, and he and he allows a proclamation to be read, which says, "I was lying about what I discovered. I do not believe it. It's against the teachings of the church." And the the, the scene ends with sort of a, a double line about heroism, and Galileo sort of his point is that a society which needs him to be a hero is a lost society. Uh, Andrea says, you should have been a hero, basically. And Galileo says, well, I'm not. And f being in a position, putting me in the position of a society that needs me to be a hero is going to be a failing situation. Yeah, I, I, I like that moment. At first, I didn't. And it's because I'm conditioned to want a moment where something poignant happens. And and you 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 run into this moment and it's it's a it's a two line they're very similarly structured Andrea laments unhappy is the land that breeds no hero and Galileo throws back at him no unhappy is the land that needs a hero and both of those are messy both of those are like yeah but I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and and I have, I think it has a certain emotional resonance. Yeah. But then, of course, Brecht puts at the end a long, heady quote from Galileo's proof that you're supposed to superimpose on the on the on the scene, which talks about basically how um, the idea that that things that are big and things that are small have an equal toughness is wrong. And it's it's this long <laughs> thing. So it's, it, it pulls you out of the moment to have to read through this sort of scientific proof. Yeah. But the end of it, I actually think, is a poignant message about society, which is the, the, the message of the scientific text is about how, you know, things that have different sizes can fall from different heights and survive. And the, the core societal message is about how structures like the Catholic Church that are so huge and structures like the individual, which are so small, have a different toughness to them. They can endure different things. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, which comes out in the scene, the next scene, which is kind of a, a an interesting scene of, of maybe reconciliation, perhaps, where Andrea comes to visit Galileo. Galileo is is a prisoner of the Inquisition for many, the rest many of his Many, many years life. have gone by. Virginia is now a, an older, middle-aged woman. Yep, yep. And she is uh, clearly never married. She's now caring for him in a basically a prison apartment where he is not doing his research, supposedly, and he is just sort of living away the rest of his life yeah. in servience to the church. Yeah, asking to weigh in on things like uh, rope manufacturing. Um, he's, he's asked to. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, um, Andrea comes and visits him in that space and airs some of his grievance, grievances from before and uh, gives him uh, gives him a hard time with it, and it's 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 again a messy scene. Galileo reveals that he's been working this whole time on his doctorosi, I believe it's called his uh, his magnum opus, the big his next stage in science, and he's gotten more blind well, as a result. Yeah, of Yeah, he finishes the 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 book that would be the proof. Yeah, um, of of the sort of new science now that they understand astronomy. Mm -hmm. Yep, and and Andrea begins to thank him and and claims for him that this was his plan all along that that you just need time Discourse. to be. Able that's the name of the book that he can yeah the discourse and you just and he says you just needed more time so of course you kind of caved to the Vatican to allow yourself because the time because apparently Andreas lived his whole life thinking that Galileo is a traitor to the cause right. he's never visited him again he's hated him all these years and he comes to him as an old man and Galileo reveals that he ha he has been fit he has finished a copy of this proof that he was working on which he he wants Andrea to take and Andrea says well, you did it you only recanted so that they wouldn't kill you and you'd have time to finish this beautiful perfect piece of science uh, scientific literature that you've been working on 
And Galileo says what? Well, he says, no, I was just afraid of the pain. <laughs> I, they showed me the instruments and I couldn't, I, I couldn't stand up to the potential of pain. And uh, so again, like you, 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 you try to set Galileo on this pedestal and Brecht still won't let you put him firmly on the pedestal. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so that, that, there's that scene. We could spend a lot more time on that scene, but I love the way that this play ends, which is the final scene. Andrea is leaving the country. He has smuggled away Galileo's proof. Galileo has told him basically, uh, look, if you, if you, if this gets discovered, you're going to have to admit that you copied it from like the Papal uh, uh, archives. You can't say you got it from me. So Andrea's smuggling it. And he comes across this group of children who have seen a shadow from inside a house. And the shadow looks like there's an old witch in there brewing some potion. Mm -hmm. So the children have decided to attack the witch. And Andrea kind of picks one of them out and says, are you sure that that's a witch? How do you know? And the kid gives some of his evidence. And Andrea (laughs) says, well, have you thought about this? And have you thought about this? Let's look into it. I love the way that Andrea interacts with the kid. And the kid says, what, you don't believe that she's a witch? And Andrea says, I don't know if she's a witch or not. I haven't looked into it. Should we look into it together? Mm -hmm. I mean, what what a great sort of way to teach children about science. Yeah. This idea that you can't know something until you've looked into it and, and uncovered it. Yeah. And so, so they do. He, he, he grabs the, the kid and, and holds him up to the window so that he can see into the room. And uh, looking inside, he just sees a woman stirring a pot of soup with a ladle. And so he lowers him down and he says to the kid, you know, what did you see? Or, or what did you see? He said, just a woman making soup. And it's like, well, what about that broomstick? I know I saw a broomstick there. And the kid responds, no, it's just a ladle. She's she's stirring soup. <laughs> and he says, you know. And, and, and Andrea, again, has a great, another variation on that line. He says, oh, that's weird. I would have thought she was a witch. But you're the one who's looked into it. So you know. Yeah. So I'll trust you because you've looked into it. Mm-hmm. And he begins to walk away. He leaves the boy, having learned this lesson. The uh, customs agent who was kind of checking his documents comes back and begins to take him away. And, and then what happens, Jacob, at the end of that scene? Well, the little boy basically says, I don't care what we discovered. I don't care what you think. I know she's a witch. She's a witch, darn you. And he kicks over her milk bottle mm-hmm. and he gets the kids together again. They're chanting this thing about her being a witch. And and Andrea basically leaves in defeat. He was unable to ration these children into, into uh, not ration these children. He was unable to convince these children to think rationally. Yeah. Yeah, which is such a compelling visual way to show off what much of this play has been about despite all the evidence despite showing people with allowing them to see with their own eyes something that is against what they expected to be true they still choose to believe what they expected to be true in the end and and of course this the the play ends with a uh, a very lovely challenge to the audience you'd either put it on a placard or project it or something it says may you now guard science light kindle it and use it right lest it be a flame to fall downward to consume us all yeah so of course the social challenge that we are all supposed to take out as as great students of epic brechtian theater mm-hmm. and and change the world based on what we've seen yes now that our minds have been activated and fully engaged with this play here is what you may do with it go out and do likewise I am really surprised that this play has not seen a large revival yeah. lately. It it has such important themes and really connective tissue to what is going on in our society with science denial, with the conflicts between church and state, with the way that our society is beginning to look at how it's structured and who is deciding how that structure works and the common people, you know, are beginning to question how that works and why we're in these situations. I'm shocked that somebody hasn't put together a major revival of this play. Yeah, I I agree. I I think maybe there is some some problems with like just understanding the the intricacies of the politics around it but i think that's easily overcome galileo of the ancient scientists perhaps only our aristotle is is as close to being publicly known as galileo is galileo is taught in schools you learn it this is a you know it's a character that you can identify with and it's couched in in a time of great upheaval and i agree that so many of the themes apply to our own upheaval at this time i'd be surprised if if there is 
isn't some way to either bring back the themes, if not the play itself in, in the coming productions upcoming. The, the play is just so full of amazing images of wonderful scenes. Like I, you, you heard me say over and over, this is one of my favorite, favorite scenes. <laughs> so there's just so many of them. I'm so very, very, very fond of this play. This, this podcast ended up being more of a description as we walk through what happens. I hope we captured for you some of the brilliant moments that we found, some of those enduring themes through the core of the script. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 one of those plays that the language is beautiful, and uh, the the language itself is is at least half the ride. Um, and the rest of the ride is this plot of of going through and and uh, figuring out what happens to everyone as a result of it and the choices they make. But the way that the discourse is handled in it brings about the point. So I cannot recommend more strongly to read this one. This one is a good one to read um, because you'll you'll fully appreciate all of the points that are being made by the characters. And I believe our former institution did a production of Galileo long before we were there. Yeah. So I'd be interested if any, especially any of the staff that would have still been around or any of the alumni that we were friends with were involved in that production to hear about that. Or any of you all, other No Script listeners, if you have seen or been involved with the production of this play, if you've read the script, we'd love to hear from you. I especially am very interested in hearing what people think about this play. Like I said, it's made my list, my top five, top six plays that I really, really want to direct. I've always had such a deep connection with the play. You know, I just discovered it at a used bookshop. I was there buying plays and there was a Brecht one that I hadn't had yet. So I grabbed the Brecht play I didn't own and read it and just instantly fell in love with it. Hmm, Yeah. Yeah, so please, please find us on all the social medias. If you've read this play and want to interact with someone else who has read the play, we'd love to have that conversation with you. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We have an email. All the user handles are NoScriptPodcast, and the uh, email is NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. If you liked this episode or other episodes, we would really love for you to share it and to tell people about it. That's how our listenership and how the family of NoScript will continue to grow week to week. So please tell people about it. Share it on your social medias. You can find the podcast on Podbean, on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, and on Spotify. Yes, and we forgot to mention at the beginning of the episode, but... Keep getting excited for Miller Month, which is coming up next month. Two weeks now. We have one more episode of our regular programming before we pause for a month-long look at Mr. Arthur Miller. Yes, indeed. We are getting excited about it, starting to read up on it, and all that business is going to be a great month. One of the theater's largest, most prolific American theaters, especially uh, prolific authors of the previous century. So get excited for that. With that, I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. I'm Jackson Nikolai. Thank you for joining us on another episode of No Script. We'll see you next week. See ya.